The Restless Heart Podcast, Episode 7. Friends in High Places. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Restless Heart Podcast. Hello. My name is David. And I'm Nessa. So, Nessa, <laughs> we have both had very interesting weeks. <laughs> Brutal. Let's, let's share with the people the happy things that have happened. Oh, good idea. Well, on the 8th, on the Nativity of Our Mother, I launched My Mother Loves Me. It's a video I've been working on producing, directing for two years. It's finally out. So if you go on Facebook to Culture of Life and Anya State uh, Foundation, you will see the video there. Um, I also recovered from a week-long flu. It was awful. Um, it wasn't the stomach flu. I did feel nauseous, but nothing. I didn't upchuck anything, thankfully. <laughs> but I did have a fever for about three days, and I just I was totally incapacitated. It was awful. So for wash the, your hands, the, people. For those of you who are eating, we are terribly sorry that you just heard Nessa say upchuck. Oh, and you just repeated it. Good job. I was apologizing. Anyway, so, and then one of my coworkers, while I'm sick, sends me a text message that there's a Hep A um, outbreak in San Diego County and there's been like 15 deaths. I'm dying inside because there's homeless people. Like, we feed the homeless once a month and there's already been 16 deaths. And that was as of, I think, yesterday, the day before. And like, why do we have to wait until now to help clean up and to send like sinks out there for them to wash their hands? I'm like, this should have been done a long time ago, guys. It just, it it makes me upset. And I just, I want to do something about it. And then I had an ER trip for my grandfather. So that that was pleasant. He might need a pacemaker, but that's good news because he's going to be okay. How was your week, David? (laughs) Good things, good things. Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm just going to skip over the stuff that was less than great. Uh, Since we did... Our last recording, I took my CPR training, which was great. And actually, one of the things that the teacher was surprised at, she said I was actually the first person that she had taught that was doing the course not because they had to. Mm-hmm. Everyone else has to do it because it's either for their job mm-hmm. or they're volunteering for something else and they need this. So without being too preachy, guys, if you have never learned CPR, if you wouldn't know what to do, if you saw somebody passed out on the floor, go take a CPR class. Yeah, don't let all the doctors and nurses do all the work. Yeah, don't let them hog the glory. Because you, you never you know, you might like meet the one and she might like fall for me like, oh my God, he saved him. <laughs> He's the one. <laughs> well done, Nessa. Uh, I dream about this, okay? <laughs> clearly, clearly. I think there's a script in there somewhere. <laughs> and the other fun thing I did was I had a little trip to Vegas with some of my friends. Mm. And we ate at some lovely restaurants. We visited some fantastic bars with gorgeous views and drank some very expensive scotch i've never been to vegas it's great for short periods of time on the way back from vegas i had two really great uber trips where i was just talking to the drivers uh, on the way to the airport in vegas uh, the guy who was driving me was a christian and so we had a really great chat about faith i got to talk about c.s lewis which always makes me happy <laughs> and uh, actually when i got back to san diego as i was being driven home it was this guy, he and his wife had adopted a baby in Mexico several years ago. Hmm. And so that's where they had been living. And they were just about finished the adoption process. They've been living in Mexico. Mm-hmm. 
just for the adoption process. Yep. Oh my gosh. It was it was beautiful. beautiful. And so we, yeah. we actually got to talk about, you know, life and family and children and all these other great things. We had a really deep conversation. Mm. So if you want a great Uber trip, start talking to your driver. Ask them how long they've been doing it, why do they get into it, where are they originally from? It might lead to some interesting places. Well, my coworker of mine, Margaret, she we call her the Uber Queen because she doesn't have a license and she doesn't want one and nor does she want to drive. Mm-hmm. And so she's the queen of Uber. She finds ways to get from point A to point B and she travels so much. It's awesome. And um, she always talks to her Uber drivers. She's always evangelizing and she gives us really great stories. So. When, I, when I was living in Seattle, uh, I knew some guys who had actually purposely sold their cars. They just, they did the maths and what? found out that it was cheaper for them just to Uber to places rather than maintain a car. No way. <laughs> well, Seattle's Seattle's public transport isn't actually that bad. Seattle is crazy. I went there. There's like no parking whatsoever. Oh, you have to par- like pay. Parking is terrible. Another <gasps> reason to Uber. <laughs> they make you Uber. Like that's where it profits. <laughs> I'm sure it's some grand conspiracy. Never mind. I'm losing you. Forget it. <laughs> yeah. What are yeah. we talking about today? Uh, today we are talking about friends in high places. We're talking about the saints. The funny thing was in my story, the saints were introduced to me by a Protestant. It was actually a Baptist minister. He loved St. Francis. And so he would talk about St. Francis and he made me watch the amazingly cheesy movie, Brother, Son, Sister Moon. And I don't ever really recall being taught about saints before or knowing any real details about any of their lives. Same here. My Catholic education was somewhat lacking. But after I watched the movie, I went and read a book about the life of St. Francis. And you know the WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? That's No. You've never heard of that? No. (laughs) Okay, so in Protestant circles, you'll often see people wearing a a wristband. It says WWJD. The Mm. idea is that when you're confronted by a difficult situation, you see your wristband Uh. and you think to yourself, what would Jesus do? And... In the saints, in particular in the life of St. Francis, I saw many, many examples of that. In particular, I was reading about a story. Someone had come to Francis and told him that there was a priest in a neighboring town who was openly living with a woman. He was openly having an affair. Whoa. And in the story it says, and then Francis went to the town. And it was at this point I was turning the page. And I was thinking yeah, to myself, go, go get him, Francis. You know, he was like a hellfire damnation. Come on, come on. And he comes to the town. He meets the priest, kneels down and kisses his hands. Because uh. these are the hands that confect the Eucharist. And all I could think of when I read that, one, I had the wind taken out of my sails a little bit because I, I was all for Francis to give him an earful. Wait, Francis is not a priest, right? He's a deacon. But my, this, the wind was out of my sails because I wanted Francis to tell him off. But all I could think of, that was such a Jesus move. And by that, I mean it was so unexpected. Well, yeah, Mary so, Magdalene. So full of grace and utterly made me want to be a better Christian. The answer to what would Jesus do? Well, we have the lives of the saints to show us what Jesus would do if he was a friar who was tra- walking around preaching. We have... An, an explanation as to what Jesus would do if he was a teacher, if he was a parent, or all these different situations that we don't see narrated in the Gospels, but we see lived out in the church and in the lives in particular of the saints. So then what happened? 
I can't remember. Oh, God. I ruined that. I'm sorry. It's a horrible I'm, cliffhanger. If, That's well, it. I'm not writing stories with you. Well, it, it could be homework if you really want to find out. But also, come on, it's San Francis. Homework, I'm, what is I'm that? Sh- I'm sure the guy uh-uh, repented. I finished school. No more homework. <laughs> oh. It's just work now. <laughs> so, yeah. So, today we're going to be talking about the saints. Or I'm going to... I'm going to tell a couple of saint stories. But before we even get to that, there's often the question of, well, how does somebody become a saint? And sometimes Protestants will object to our use of the term because they say in the Bible, everyone's a saint. And that's true. That's how the New Testament describes Christians. They are the saints, literally the holy ones, the ones set apart. But when Catholics use the term typically, yes, we are all saints. But typically when Catholics use the word saint, they mean it with a capital S. This is a Christian who has gone through a canonization process, who has been officially recognized by the church as somebody who has lived a life of great holiness and who is now in heaven. And the process of recognizing somebody to be a canonized saint has changed a little bit over the course of church history. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, initially it was mostly by popular acclaim. For example, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna. These were people in the second century who were well known for their holiness. Are you kidding me? This is a popularity contest? Sounds like the Oscars. Yes, but for holiness. Okay, fine. Because they inspired the people that were around them. And in particular, with those two, they were martyrs. They offered their blood for Christ. So they were acclaimed as being people who had lived lives of great holiness. And so their feast days were remembered the day that they that they died, died yeah. and they were, and people asked for their intercession. And so what would typically happen is it was generally recognized that this person was somebody holy and therefore someone to whom you should uh, direct petitions. And then over time, then it spreads throughout the church. And so that a saint that died in Rome is still celebrated in Antioch. But over time, it became a little bit more formalized to recognize who is a saint particularly of the universal church. How? Well, it started with Pope St. John Paul II because he, he, he did some reforming of the saint-making process. Yeah, he's a pretty cool guy. I like his school. Well, this, <laughs> is, this is how it works now. So first of all, you become a... Well, first of all, you have to die. You can't, you can't be declared a saint while you're still living. So you die, and then you can be called a servant of God. And this is when a local bishop submits the name of somebody to Rome. So the bishop in, who was typically in charge of that person submits to Rome that this is somebody who lived a life of courageous holiness. And then they then get upgraded to venerable. And this is when there's been an examination and Rome formally recognizes that this person led a life of heroic virtue. And it's at this point that prayer cards can be printed and distributed oh, for that saint. Okay. They then get another upgrade to blessed yeah, I remember that with Blessed Mother Teresa mm-hmm. and JP too. Mm-hmm. Pierre Giorgio Frassati, he's still a blessed. But you reach this stage when there's a confirmed miracle uh, and a post-mortem miracle in particular. So a saint could have, could have performed many miracles in their life, but for them to be a canonized saint, there has to be a, a miracle that comes about through their intercession after, after their they death. died. Yeah. yeah. Because this is a sign that they're in heaven, that somebody has prayed to this person, that they have asked for their intercession, and in heaven they have asked God, and this grace has been granted. Wait, what about Padre Pio, the stigmata? What that about? That was like, he didn't die yet. 
Yes. And he already had but, a but miracle. That doesn't help him in his canonization process other than showing that he's living a life of great virtue. So but we call people like that who are alive living saints? Saints with a lowercase s. You and I are saints. If you're a baptized uh, Christian, you're a saint. Okay. Yay. But you're not a canonized saint. Mm. That oh, yeah. That I can take my time with that one. <laughs> yet. Yet. I should put that on my business card. <laughs> so when there's a confirmed miracle and there are lots of tests around what constitutes a valid proved miracle but then there's papal approval for they call it a local diocesan cult remember a few episodes ago i used the term cult yeah you said it was all scary yeah. i just said all cult means is some kind of religious devotion so when somebody's a blessed it means that within the within that diocese the bishop that submitted the request that there can be a local diocesan following of this particular person. Mm. And Rome is now saying that it's worthy of belief that this venerable person is in heaven. And there's a feast day actually assigned for that person, but it's again restricted to the local diocese. So it's not yet at a universal level. But the final stage is when they get upgraded to saint. And this is when there's a second post-mortem miracle. And it's confirmation that the person actually is in heaven. Another miracle? Mm-hmm. Oh. And then there's a universal feast day established, and then there are churches and shrines named after the saint. Now, there was... was wait, this, wait, I have a timeout. Okay. I need to know, why do we have churches named after saints? I got asked that by a Mormon. Okay. I'm like, good question. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, why do you have halls named after alumni of a university? It's to honor them. Mm -hmm. and to remind people of those who have gone before. This was in the case of saints. We have a, a church that's dedicated to, say, St. Monica, to honor St. Monica because, 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 she, because <laughs> she's family. Mm -hmm. She's part of the Catholic Church. And also to encourage people to pray to her uh, and to encourage people to find out about her life and to mimic her holiness. Mimic, uh, to what extent? Well, for example, St. Monica was well known for being the person who prayed for her son, St. Augustine, mm -hmm. for years and years and years as he went further and further away from the church. So she's seen as, a, as an example of perseverance in prayer, of motherly love. And this is one of the reasons why we read the lives of saints, so that we can read their lives and then mimic them and be inspired by them that maybe we have a family member who's away from the church and doesn't look like they're coming back anytime soon. Mm. And then we remember the example of St. Monica who prayed consistently and that that actually did happen. And her son was one of the great saints and doctors of the church. And inspired our podcast. An inspirer of amazing <laughs> podcasts. Okay, so with that now covered, let's talk about a particular saint, one of my favorites, St. Edmund Campion. Actually, in the school that I went to, each of the houses were named after a, a Catholic saint, uh, Moore, Campion, and Clitheroe. So if you're familiar with Harry Potter, it's like Gryffindor. Oh, okay. But ours were named after Catholic, Catholic saints, Catholic martyrs of England, in fact. So Edmund Campion is one of my all-time favorites. He was born in England and born a Catholic. But he became a Protestant because he was a baby during the time of the Reformation. This is during the 16th century when Henry VIII broke communion with Rome. Mm. Now, Edmund was kind of a genius. I mean, he was brilliant. You could give him a Bible verse, and he could preach on the spot, extemporaneously in Greek. 
But he was basically a rock star. He was the equivalent of Justin Bieber at the time. No, no, don't compare oh, no. him to... Girls would have no. his poster up in their bedrooms. They would squeal <laughs> no. and swoon at his preaching. He, he was a real hotshot. And he was really going places. But if you really wanted to go places in that time, you really had to become a priest of the Church of England. And so that's what Edmund started to do. He began his training. And part of that was reading the early church fathers. So as we mentioned on other podcasts, these, these are the people who are the bishops of the early church and writers. These are the people to whom the apostles passed on their authority. So St. Justin, St. Augustine, St. Jerome. And years later, Cardinal Newman would say, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And that's definitely true for Edmund. Because he was reading the works of the early church fathers, so the Christians of the early centuries, and he, he noticed something. They all sounded very Catholic. How do you sound very Catholic? Well, when you talk about Jesus being truly present in the Eucharist, mm-hmm. when you speak about the importance of the Bishop of Rome, when you speak about prayer to the Mother of God, these things sound kind of Catholic. Okay, sorry, I'm just used to it. <laughs> <laughs> So what Edmund did is he went to one of the leading authorities in the Church of England and someone who was schooled in patristics who knew the early church fathers. Schooled in what? Patristics. What's that? Uh, it means the early church fathers. As in Sounds like, like a class in Hogwarts. <laughs> pretty much. And he, so he goes to this Anglican priest, and one who actually later became a bishop, and he asked him, what do you do about this when you read the fathers? How can you not be Catholic? And his response, he says, well, I read them, but I don't necessarily believe, believe them. them. Yeah. What he was essentially saying was that he'd read what the saints had written and he thought he knew better. But Edmund couldn't do that. And so he knew he needed to be Catholic. But to be Catholic in England was extremely dangerous. This would get you killed. So he initially runs away to Ireland, but he's not safe there. So he flees across the English Channel to the continent where he goes and trains with the Jesuits. That's the group founded by Ignatius of Loyola. Mm. And he becomes a priest. And then he does something kind of amazing. He returns to England. He goes back as an undercover priest. Oh, snaps. This is awesome. I like him. So he sneaks around England, secretly preaching, administering the sacraments, and hiding in fake walls and in floors and roofs. He writes pamphlets. There's quite a famous one called Campion's Brag he basically defends the church, saying that the Catholic church is the true church and also that being Catholic isn't something treasonous because yeah. this, this was the idea. This was what was put out, that if you're a Catholic, then you're not really faithful to England. I'll actually just read a little, a little bit of Campion's brag. All right. He says, Be it known to you that we have made a league, all the Jesuits in the world, whose succession and multitude must overreach all the practices of England, Cheerfully to carry the cross you shall lay upon us, and never to despair your recovery to Catholicism. While we have a man left to enjoy your Tyburn, that's, that was the prison. Hmm. So basically, while we've still got people that are left to go to your prison, we're going to be seeking conversion of the, the royal family and of England. Or to be racked with your torments, or consumed with your prisons. The expense is reckoned, the enterprise is begun, it is of God, it cannot be withstood. So the faith was planted so must it be restored. And there was a huge price on his head. 
And so that meant that every time he celebrated the Eucharist or heard someone's confession, he was taking a huge risk of being betrayed. And after a year of ministry, that's exactly what happened. Oh, no. He was betrayed. He was captured and he was tortured severely. He was starved, beaten, put upon the rack. Mm. And so he's going to die, but they want to make an example of him. And so they want to humiliate him before he dies. So they bring him before a panel of top-notch scholars with all their books to debate him. He's been in prison. He's he's He's, been starved and beaten and put upon a rack. And so they debate Edmund. That's not fair. And he mops the floor with them. <laughs> we said, you know, very early on, he showed himself to be a real rock star. And uh, years of training and, uh, and the sacraments had only made that better. Mm. So they do eventually kill him. He's hung, drawn, and quartered. If you mm. want to know what that's like, Mm-mm. Google it. It's kind of gross. But here's my favorite part of the story. When he's killed, there's a guy called Henry Walpole who had actually bought a ticket to Edmund's execution. What? They sold tickets to this? This is entertainment. So he comes to this execution, and he's actually at the foot of the gallows. And when Edmund is killed, Henry is splattered with Campion's blood. Mm. And in an instant, he converts. Mm? In an instant, he converts. And then he travels to the continent, He becomes a Jesuit and a priest, and then he returns to England. Has a secret ministry, is betrayed, caught, and martyred. He became Saint Henry Walpole. Is this a movie? I don't know if there actually has been a movie version of this, but there was a very famous book about Edmund's life written by Evelyn Moore, the author of Brideshead Revisited. It's quite famous. Hmm. The reason why I love the end of this story how Campion's blood converts Henry Walpole, is the story goes full circle. Not only does Edmund effectively give birth to someone who follows in his footsteps, but that Edmund's own conversion to Catholicism had come through reading the writings of the early church. You see, in the second century, there was a Christian called Tertullian, and he wrote this. He said, blood of the martyrs is the seed of Christians sometimes rendered the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The idea being that when Christianity is persecuted, it actually brings new life. Jesus himself said that a grain of wheat, unless it dies, remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it brings forth a great harvest. That's what happened with Edmund Campion. Well, that's what happened with Christ. And Edmund copied him. So that was the life of St. Edmund Campion. I'd love to do some more of these episodes, our Friends in High Places, where we talk about some of our favorite saints. So until next week, uh, Nessa, what have you got lined up? Um, Tomorrow is a going away party for one of my friends. She's moving out to Tennessee. And after that, it's um, it's the last year of um, my 20s. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're still in your 20s you can't complain you, so, ha- you have youth on your side when that when that number starts clocking up to the next one then you can start complaining so I don't know what I want to do I know I want to try something new like horseback riding or I might just fold to just go dirt bike riding with my brothers if anybody has any suggestions please tweet us at David and Nessa <laughs> as to what you think Nessa should do 
as she enters her 30s. Uh, speaking of the Twitter account, I now have the copy of Jackie and Bobby Angel's marriage devotion called Forever. If you follow us and tweet us with a question or a comment or a suggested topic, you'll be entered into the draw to win it. And I think we'll do that after the next episode. Okay. Hey, David, so what are you doing this weekend? Uh, I've got a meeting of the Eagle and Child, our C.S. Lewis reading group. But right now, after the week I've just had, I'm going to go to Adoration. <laughs> uh, I'm going to join you. <laughs> it's okay. pretty crazy. Ready for the sign-off? Yes. You made us for yourself, O oh Lord. And our hearts will wander restless until we rest in you. All you holy angels and saints, and especially St. Edmund Campion. Pray for us. <laughs>